0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.
1: So Jennifer Morris, she's from Conservation International in D.C. She's the executive vice president for this organization that you may or may not have heard about. I've had the uh, pleasure and honor of knowing about this organization for quite a while. They're in the same sort of um, ballpark as World Wildlife Foundation and others like that. But this, what's interesting about Cons- Conservation International is they bring an entrepreneurial spirit to environmental uh, nonprofit work. In other words, they run it like it feels like. An internet startup company, even though they they have offices in sixty company uh, 60, 60 countries, excuse me, offices in sixty countries, um, all over this planet. Um, Jennifer, in particular, is interesting. She's on the leadership team, the senior senior management of the uh, this NGO, but she also is responsible for their connecting with business and all and running it, running even funds that feel like a venture capital fund. So they're. So what's, what's fun is to compare this to the principles of Silicon Valley. How are the principles of Silicon Valley being able to be used by organizations that are in social innovation? So without further ado, let's welcome a graduate of Emory University and Columbia University. Let's welcome her to Stanford University, Jennifer Morris.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here today, um, and I'm I'm honored to be kicking off your spring series here at Stanford. Um, As Tom said, my name is Jennifer Morris, and um, I do work in Washington D.C. However, living in a in a place um, that is sometimes not considered very entrepreneurial, I like to get out into the world. And as Tom mentioned, we have offices all over the world. I did just arrive from Singapore late last night, so if uh, if I start to fade, my time clock is telling me that it's the middle of the night right now so I've asked Judy to please throw some water on me during the presentation if I start to sort of fade a little bit. But I'm here to talk to you about Conservation International, um, the the interesting work that we do around the world and um, I'm really looking forward to engaging you in a conversation about, um, about CI and about a new area that you may or may not heard of called ecosystem services. Um, ecosystem services are, are a relatively, relatively new concept in terms of thinking in the United States and, and in, in Europe and other countries about how we can monetize nature. How can we actually bring in the market principles to nature other than just thinking about nature as something that we need to take and exploit. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, ecosystem services and ecosystem service markets and also some interesting entrepreneurs in this space, both, both government and companies, um, and as well to encourage all of you who are thinking about your future careers to get involved in this very exciting area of ecosystem service market development. But first, I want to tell you a story about how I got involved in conservation. Um, Quick geography test does anybody know where this tree is from? Any guesses? Yes, in the back? Senegal. Senegal. Um, Close, right? Continent. Anyone else? This is, um, this is a tree from Namibia. It's actually quite a, uh, did you know that? <laughs> it's uh, quite a unique tree, and I'm not surprised you didn't get it, but it is a, a tree that's endemic to the country of Namibia. And this is where I started my journey to conservation. I, um, after I graduated from college, um, I spent a year in Japan teaching, and then I decided that I wanted to go into public health. So I, um, and I also was very interested in Africa. So I went to uh, the country of Namibia and was a volunteer with a program through Harvard called World Teach. and I lived in a little community next to a clinic, and I spent my weeks teaching women English. Um, Namibia had just become independent uh, from South Africa, and English was now becoming very common, and all the women um, who hadn't had access to formal education in English were anxious to study the new language of, of freedom, really, of Namibia. So I went there thinking I was going to go into public health. So I uh, spent my weekends teaching during the week, and my weekends I spent in the villages with mostly women and their families. And we spent probably about 90% of our time collecting water and collecting firewood because in countries like Namibia and many others throughout the world um, there's no access to, to electricity, there's no access to, to water unless you actually go out and fetch it. Um, and of course wood is really critical for cooking in, this, in these communities. But. These people living in this area, which is an increasingly arid area of the world, it's very arid already, but because of deforestation, these resources are becoming harder and harder to find. So these women, instead of going to school or working, were spending most of their time actually just collecting basic um, natural resources for their survival. In addition to that, when they're out in these places collecting firewood and water, they're um, subject to, to malaria. I mean, there's a lot of malaria in this area, but when they're out deep into the, to the woods collecting uh, water and firewood, they're more prevalent to, to disease. This whole community that I was living in um, had a lot of diseases which were really natural resource related. So I started thinking about my career path and said, you know, I'm actually really interested in the drivers of poverty and the drivers of natural resource or um, of health issues which really were related to natural resource degradation so i decided to change my career path and instead think about the intersections between um human development especially related to women's issues when women are not able to take advantage of educational opportunities because they're spending all their time just trying to find fuel wood and water uh, to support their families so this sort of interconnection between natural resources poverty and development and health became very important to me and led me then to Conservation International. After I went back to school, I went to Columbia and studied business and economics and then found my way um, to to CI. Um, As Tom mentioned, CI, many of you may not know um, our name. We are based in Washington, D.C., but we do have offices throughout the world. We're working in directly in um, 30 countries but are actually through partnerships. Partnerships is a really critical part of CI in over 60. Um, We do have 800 and just just under 900 total staff, and I should mention that a big thing that I think differentiates us a bit from other um, nonprofit organizations based in the U.S. is that we're really focused on not going into another country, a developing country, and saying this is what you should do for conservation and development, but really having those answers and those solutions come from local people themselves. So about 98% of our staff are actually from the countries in which we're working, so that we ensure that it's it's all about um, local solutions and local leadership. So the leaders that we um, we have all along the world, all across the world, really are entrepreneurs in the environmental world. So let me tell you a little bit about um, conservation and. National's approach. Science is the pillar of our success and our focus. We are very committed to uh, creating and developing scientific solutions to some of nature's problems. And this is, this is a key cornerstone of our credibility and how we can walk into um, the leader of the, pre- the president of Guyana, for example, and sit down with him and show him the, the, the science, the maps behind ecosystem services, and how important it is to conserve these things. In addition, field demonstration. If you can't see it, it's very difficult to explain it and to demonstrate the importance of what we're trying to do. So in all the places where we work, either ourselves or through partners, it's all about demonstrating success through entrepreneurial solutions to to the world's problems. Partnerships, critical. The problem of, of uh, environmental degradation is way too big for one organization, obviously. So we have a very strong focus on partnerships. In fact, about 30% of our annual budget is actually going directly to provide financing, either in the forms of grants or in loans, but primarily grants to partner um, organizations, other nonprofit organizations worldwide. Policy. In order to be um, uh, credible and to really achieve scale, we have to address policy issues. So whether it's the International Climate Convention that we're actively participating in, or working with national governments or regional governments. Policy is a critical piece of the puzzle that we're trying to address. And then finally, this is all, our whole objective is not to stop development, of course. Our whole objective is to create a more sustainable future for the planet. So to achieve enduring economies or green economies. Those economies that can really achieve success, both growth, um, but, do, but have growth in a sustainable fashion. So that's what CI is all about now, is really this focus on enduring economies. It's not about just protection. It's about growth with sustainability. So I'm going to talk about this whole area of what we call ecosystem services. Has everybody heard this term before? Some, yes, some nods, yes. So ecosystem services are basically those services that our planet provides that are critical not only for the planet's functioning, but also for humans. So things like water, things like carbon and climate, things like food and health are really critical um, aspects of, of, uh, of our society, which we sometimes think about, the things that nature provides. So. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of ecosystem services that sometimes are talked about, but what, we're, what the whole movement is trying to do now is actually quantify ecosystem services. So not just say, oh yeah, water's important. We need to have fresh water. But what does that mean in dollar terms? And in, in terms of pollination, this is one that I find particularly interesting, that pollination, meaning that the, the natural pollinators, insects, birds, et cetera, Um, are measured to achieve about $190 billion a year in value to agriculture. Okay, so that's just the insect pollinators, that those agricultural crops could not do well without those natural pollinators. So the importance of those pollinators um, for agriculture is critical. So we we need to think about how to preserve them. Medicines. Probably most of you know that a lot of our, our pharmaceutical um, drugs come specifically from naturally derived genetic resources. But it's very significant, not only in dollar terms, as you see there, but also about 80 to 85 percent of all pharmaceutical um, drugs on the market come from actual, originate from a natural plant, um, primarily plant. So this is very, very significant. We have to, to think about these things and be able to measure them to, to appreciate them. So this goes to my, my next point, which is accounting for nature. So those are two examples where I think we've, we've been able to develop some actual dollar terms behind um, behind the, the importance of nature. But there's other things that now that, that many countries are saying we should not just be looking at gross domestic product, should we not be changing the way we think about, um, think about measuring the products and services that a country provides and develop something called a green GDP or an, a GDP which actually can measure and value things like water, um, things like um, pollinators I already mentioned, those types of products, and also the carbon that's stored in forests, which I'll talk a lot about today, um, if we can't actually measure it these things often won't be valued because people just assume that they're there. But if you can't really quantify it and bring in what we call those, bring those externalities into our accounting system, it's going to be very difficult to measure and to then ultimately value these things. So there's new, um, several new things that are happening in this space where countries and companies are starting to try to bring in the value of externalities onto their own balance sheets, whether they're GDPs or um, the balance sheets of companies. And we'll see where this goes. There's a, a, a very this is a very new venture space, and uh, but a really critical first step from to go from from good accounting to then actually to markets. So what we really need is a complete market transformation. How are we able to bring in these externalities? And it's not just about the costs of inputs that are increasing as resources decline, but really how do we incorporate all of those provisioning services into the markets and how we think about um, goods and services. So there are some markets that have developed. There's a carbon market, there's a a water market, and I'll talk a little bit about um, that, whether or not it's a true market yet. But what is the demand right now of these? I wanted to talk a little bit about carbon. I'm sure many of you are familiar with um, the carbon market. It has a lot of uh, press here in California in particular. But I wanted to show you this statistic because it relates directly to to, uh, the development of an area called forest carbon. So in terms of our global emissions, many people don't know this, but deforestation, actually when trees are cut and carbon is released into the atmosphere, um, the annual emissions from deforestation alone is more than two times the total emissions from all cars, trucks, planes combined. So just think about around the world, That's almost 16% of total emissions all around the world in places in particular like Indonesia and Brazil, which represent the majority of um, emissions from deforestation. In fact, Indonesia alone, 80% of their emissions are from deforestation, only from deforestation. So you imagine that um, the the, uh, magnitude of this problem continues to be incredibly significant. However, there are some interesting new opportunities in terms of markets. And the area that CI is particularly engaged with is an area called forest carbon. So how do we monetize, again, thinking about new markets, um, how do we monetize something that we can't see, uh, something that has never tried to be be, um, uh, valued before, how, do we, how can we monetize this? There's a whole area, a new area um, of development called forest carbon. It's very much in the venture space, but there's some very exciting opportunities here. Right now, if you look at the whole carbon market, so these are the, this is the market that trades um, what are called CDMs or, or verified um, emissions reductions, where, which is under the Kyoto Protocol. It's about a $15 billion market. Of that entire piece, less than 1%, is related to forest carbon or land use. So this is the situation today. Still a very small piece of the pie, and there are many reasons for that, which I'll explain. But what we want to see in the future, if you look at the market projections up to 2020, it's 150 billion dollar in projected uh, size of the carbon market. Okay. So in um, the, the traditional carbon market, in terms of trades, is basically a, a let's say a factory in China or India switches its technology to lower carbon technology, there's a, a credit that's created from doing that. And under a cap and trade system, that um, there can be buying and selling between companies for those that have um, more than they need to those that, that have less and need to buy carbon on the market. So right now, if we're thinking into the future by 2020, $150 billion is the pie. And with some, some, some changes and some entrepreneurial thought in this space, we're hoping that it can get up to 30 billion. That's the potential of the trade um, for forest. But there's some, there's some challenges and some opportunities. So the challenges are that currently there's no global um, regulatory framework for forest carbon, or what we call reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation, or RED. Right, Kyoto didn't, hasn't approved it yet, however, so so, there's, so regulation is not confirmed in the marketplace. However, we do have a shining uh, light and an example, subnational at, um, in the California case, of a cap-and-trade system that was passed, as you probably all are familiar with, you may be familiar with AB32, it was passed. So allowing utility companies, other companies, to try to cap their emissions as much as they can and that which they can't. Um, they they can't reach the goals that they're trying to achieve, they can actually um, trade, purchase carbon uh, to achieve their emissions reduction goals. This, for the first time ever, this AB 32 allows for carbon offsets. Carbon offsets from forests, so forest carbon offsets. And that is absolutely, uh, this is the first time we could have a regulatory market for forest carbon, which is incredibly exciting. So the market potential is a billion dollars. However, there are some serious challenges with trying to monetize this asset. And I wanted to bring this up to you today because I, I, all of you in this room have the potential to be um, incredible entrepreneurs and to help us think through these challenges and, and really um, work to, to monetize this critical asset. One issue is, of course, regulation. We need to go beyond California to really have a huge market for this. So we need a re- regulatory, an international regulatory framework that will allow for forest carbon offsets, or there won't be the, the huge incentive for companies to, to use forest carbon as a, as a creditable mechanism for offsetting their emissions. Carbon tenure. So um, most of you probably know that um, land tenure in many countries is very different from the United States, where land tenure, rights to land, ownership of land is, is often unclear. Well, the same goes by extension to carbon. So we don't know who owns the land. We often don't know who owns the carbon. It's very difficult to monetize an asset if you don't have an owner, so the, or, you, or the ownership is a little bit unclear, very unclear in many cases. So this has been a huge challenge. How do you establish carbon tenure in these projects? Who owns the carbon? In addition, financing. Um, the the finance, financial flows from Forest Carbon are very lumpy. You need a lot of money up front uh, to actually get the project up and going. And once you have that finance and can actually monetize the asset, then it becomes a little bit easier. But startup finance has been a critical challenge for, for a lot of these projects. But there are some entrepreneurs in this space. Um, companies like Disney, Walt Disney Company. So Walt Disney is a a partner, a corporate partner of Conservation Internationals. And they came to us and made a corporate commitment a few years ago saying, we want to get to zero waste and zero emissions. We want to to stop emitting as much as we can and have zero net carbon emissions. Well, if any of you have been to uh, a Disney park you can understand how challenging that would be in terms of all the products and services and, and um, you know, Mouseketeer hats and castles and everything that, that Disney produces they creates a lot of carbon. So they realized that they need to offset their carbon and have come to us and said, can we work on a forest carbon offset program with you? We understand that we're not currently, uh, we can't trade this credit, But again, Disney being an entrepreneur and a first-mover company has said in the event that we may be um, forced to regulate, we want to participate in the voluntary market space, carbon, forest carbon market space. So we said, okay, we'll work with you on that. Um, We're working with them on developing two projects, one in Peru um, and one in the Democratic Republic of Congo. not-so-easy places, um, especially in Democratic Republic of Congo, where land tenure and carbon tenure are very challenging to establish. And this isn't just in DRC. This is in Eastern DRC. So if you know uh, anything about the history of Eastern DRC, history and present, it's a, it's a very, there's a lot of conflict in that region. So. But we like challenges. So we are now working with uh, Disney on helping them to monetize 900,000 tons of carbon that they can then claim only as a voluntary credit right now. So um, this this was very exciting because it was the largest forest carbon partnership deal that's ever um, been done. It was $7 million, 900,000 tons, which we will deliver to them in 2014, working with our partners and communities on the ground. So there is hope. We need entrepreneurs in this space. We need first mover companies who will recognize that, yes, okay, it's not regulated yet that we can use forest carbon to trade, but it could be in the future, and besides it's just a really good thing to do. But it's not just about CSR. This is really beyond philanthropy because Disney realizes this is good for its business. Now I wanted to turn to water markets. Speaking of water, can we have some? Mm. So I put markets in quotes because carbon, evolving market, water. Well, you be the judge. I'll tell you a little, some stories about the water markets. Um, there's a lot of issues around water. It's not, it's not as the same as, a, as carbon, which is a global commodity, which doesn't really, it's no different if it's carbon from uh, Guyana in South America to a piece of carbon or a ton of carbon from, from DRC, for example. Water's a little bit different, more localized, a little bit more challenging. I want to talk a little bit about watershed service transactions. So those watershed services and, and water payments that are directly related to conservation or forest protection of key watersheds. And that's obviously the, the space of the, the market that, that CI is very interested in, which is different from, say, wetlands banking or other types of water trading, um, which is, is more common in the United States, but really providing financial incentives to people who manage land, to protect their watershed. So this is really important for a variety of different reasons from businesses to communities' access to not only fresh water but also um, electricity. So um, for those of you that don't uh, understand this exactly, so basically we have Freshwater flows, and if deforestation happens upland from those freshwater flows, then um, a couple of things happen. One, you have greater siltation and sedimentation that flows into the water because of deforestation, and when the rains come, um, all of the soil that was on top that was currently held down by the trees goes into the water. Well, that's really challenging for dam companies. Dam companies who need fast water flowing through their dams to create efficient electricity. Um, Deforestation is a real problem. So a lot of dam companies have said um, maybe we should start paying for those farmers upstream or those land managers upstream to stop deforesting. So it's a great um, market mechanism uh, for protecting watersheds. In addition to the benefits to the dam companies, there's all sorts of community benefits and of course climate um, and ecosystem service benefits. So the market right now, um, this is actually, these are 2008 numbers, $9 billion in, in payments, 113 active programs, China representing um, almost 50% of the market. Um, and, and there's a very important reason for that. Often it's related to dams. Um, however, the, some of the challenge in this is People just assume water is a public good, right? Um, it's just there, it's for us. Why should we pay? If we pay, let's just pay a little bit. The government should be providing us water. It's a public good. I mentioned before um, the challenges of, with water versus carbon. Um, often it's just a, a single buyer, the, the municipality or the electrical company. So how do you trade watershed services? We haven't quite gotten to the maturation of the market yet, but again, Thinking through some issues in specific countries and examples from, from uh, some really interesting projects in China and in the United States um, and some entrepreneurs like yourselves, we can hopefully move to, to a market for this. Same issues with carbon relate to water. Who owns it, right? If it passes through your land, do you own it and you have the right to trade it or is it really still just in the domain of the government? I do want to mention uh, some entrepreneurial projects that CI and companies like Marriott and DAM companies in China are doing. Here's an example from um, from Sichuan project, uh, province. Um, It's called the, it's a Pingu, Pingu is the name of the town, and it's called the Pingu Water Fund. And this is basically, as I mentioned before, a dam company coming to CI and working with Marriott. Marriott has about 34 hotels in China and is looking to expand significantly over the next few years and recognizes that they use a lot of water in their hotels. So they're very concerned about water. In this particular area, this province um, and this this watershed um, supports 400 million people with drinking water. Critical watershed throughout China and and, um, the rest of of South and Southeast Asia for water. This is a critical area. So together, we've created the Pingu Water Conservation Fund, which is working with us, Marriott, and um, the, the local government and utility company to create a fund that will help mitigate deforestation above the watershed to stop that runoff that's going into the dams. The dam companies provide um, reduced electricity to the communities in exchange, reduced price electricity in exchange for the conservation activities. And But recognizing, of course, that people need to deforest to plant crops and often to use, um, use trees for, for housing construction. But promoting sustainable livelihoods is a key part of this. So Marriott is helping them with, and CI is helping them with honey production and mushroom um, farming that then they're then selling in their hotels. Um, and as well, this is helping to protect uh, 24,000 hectares of critical habitat. So, so the communities win, Marriott wins, the dam company wins because of reduced deforestation, um, and um, it's a great win for, for climate and conservation of watersheds in this area. So I wanted to just uh, to finish up by encouraging all of you, as you think about your future careers and where you want to go, um, what you want to do, that um, entrepreneurship in the environmental world is absolutely crucial. Um, there's, there's so many opportunities to do interesting things. And I would also say that it's not just about um, creating a new thing that you can be an entrepreneur in a larger organization. And I think as Tom mentioned in the outset, CI has, has been a great place to uh, do that with. We, we are trying to be innovative, we're trying to be creative because these solu- solutions are incredibly complex. Working with business, um, working with governments and, and numerous communities all around the world, it's all about creating new ideas and solutions together. So I would encourage you in whatever career path that you take, um, that even if you're in a large organization, you also can be um, an entrepreneur. And I just would also challenge you all to think about your skills that you're, you're getting here. And as you go out into the world, work as much as you can in the environmental sector. And because we need you all, we need your bright minds to, to work on these complex solutions for, um, for the environment and for human development. So with that, I will close and be happy to take any questions that you might have.
1: Uh, thanks so much for your talk Uh, So it sounds like you guys work with a lot of large organizations and the entrepreneurial piece comes from sourcing ideas (coughs) on the ground maybe from from local and Uh, what's your process for identifying sort of the, the best entrepreneurial ideas and, and setting
0: those entrepreneurs up for success? Great question. So we um, we do that in a variety of different ways. So I didn't get into the details of some of the funds that we have and the partnership um, vehicles that we have. But basically we, um, we do one thing through one of the funds called um, ecosystem profiling process, where we would sit down with a bunch of different communities and um, – depending on where this, the location that we're going to invest in and we develop a localized plan and we we take um, we solicit proposals and we, um, we and our partners, and it's not we sitting in D.C. doing this, this is a local group that does this, will then look at the different ideas And in a a committee format, decide which one of those ideas um, deserve financing. So it's a very transparent, open process. Um, And we've seen that that mechanism is very well respected on the ground so that people understand it's not about picking favorites. It's really about analyzing, using different indicators for success, and ensuring that they're contributing to the larger investment plan. um, That it's a very open and transparent process. Any other questions? Tom?
1: What is uh, CI's budget and where does it come from?
0: So we have a budget uh, this year of $145 million. um, It comes from a variety of different places. Um, (laughs) It comes from from private foundations. It comes from governments, um, not just the US government, but actually increasingly European government. The French um, aid development agency is a very significant supporter. And it also increasingly comes from business. So we have many corporations that are quite interested in, um, I mentioned Marriott, um, Disney, Starbucks is one of our big supporters. Um, We're working with a multitude of different corporate partners from the mining and oil and gas sectors and trying to develop solutions together. So that's another major source of funding. Yes.
1: How important is the uh, creation of a carbon regulation mechanism in the United States to bring these initiatives forward?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's crucial. Um, Not just in the United States, but um, I think in in Europe, the European trading system as well needs to um, ensure that that red or the reduced emissions component of forest carbon is included for it to be – for it to take off, I mean, it's great that California is taking the initiative, and we hope that that um, governance climate initiative will then be expanded throughout. But will hopefully lead to national legislation. We're not there yet. Yes, um, I'm sure for CI's business model, you must have you must have a cost and benefit analysis behind a sustainable business model. Um, for example, for the um, the fund that you have with Marriott in China. It, it sounds, for me, it's more like the da- future damage protection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested, could you explain more about the benefit or like the revenue generated from this fund manage- management? So um, this fund specifically is, is not necessarily a revenue generating fund in the sense that it's trying to make a profit. It's trying to make sure that it has sufficient resources to continue providing um, resources to those communities upstream so that they won't deforest, recognizing there's an opportunity cost to preserve the forest. So it's not necessarily a, a profit model. It's really about sustainable financing. And the, reven- so the, the funding that's going into that is coming from, from the Chinese government. Um, there's a, a percentage of, of money from the dam companies that is also going into there Because uh, remember, this is not about CSR for them. This is about ensuring that siltation um, and, uh, and sedimentation into the water stops because it's much more expensive for them to try to fit to, or to clean up the dam than it is for them to stop deforestation. So this is all about enlightened self-interest. They recognize this is critical. So they're putting money into that fund. Um, Marriott's putting money into the fund again because they're using a lot of water from this area. And then CI is raising its own resources to put into that fund. So that's the whole um, the whole model. But to your general question, we look at um, cost-benefits across the whole organization. So depending on what we're trying to do, um, as a nonprofit, we're trying to create mechanisms that will be sustainable. And a key part of our work um, that I didn't mention is, is our work in, related to setting up trust funds and endowment funds, because we recognize that short-term grants will probably lead to short-term success. So ensuring long, longevity and um, creating endowment funds, which can be invested in capital markets, and instead of using the principle We just use the interest that's earned every year on that. So we're doing that all over the world. We have um, a $100 million fund um, that was financed by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation um, specifically for creating trust funds for different projects all over the world. Since this is such a long term investment, how do you measure the performance? So we measure the performance on in um, much different ways. Um, financial performance, we look at um, how is the fund doing financially. Um, uh, impact performance, so we have a series of indicators and metrics that look at um, social issues, but also, um, obviously, as a conservation organization, we're, we're very concerned about um, is the money that's being contributed from these various funds going to the right places? Is it going to really protect conservation, or is it going to, to fund administration? So we have a whole series of metrics around efficiency efficiency that we analyze for each of these funds so it's, and as Tom said I mean we, we're trying to run our NGO as a business so we take, take the lessons from, from, uh, from uh, Silicon Valley in terms of the entrepreneurial lessons but also understanding that efficiency um, has to be a key part of our business model Yes as a,
1: say globalized macro amounts in the context of a hundred trillion dollar global GDP what is the amount that would ever involve itself in this movement? Would it be one trillion? Would it be ten trillion? Or if you just could do everything you did, and you want the amount of money in play, in other words,
0: uh, we'd love for it to be a trillion at least. Um, and the magnitude of the problem is just going to be expansive, so we need to expand and, and keep pace with um, with the, the development tra- trajectory. So to put an absolute number on it is is virtually impossible, is but. the magnitude? <laughs> um, Trillions. <laughs> yeah. We need, yeah, I mean, to get to the point. And, but we don't want to do it ourselves, clearly. I mean, doing it through partners is um, is a critical component. We can't just, uh, we're not going to go out and raise a oh, trillion dollars. That would be nice. But, right, raising it, the
1: idea of actually putting the thing into play
0: and yeah. maybe coming from Tom and going over to her and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's more than that, too. What we want is a, a complete change in, in the business model of development. So it's not just about raising money and putting it into projects. It's about getting governments and businesses to incorporate these externalities or these things that are not currently in their business model into their business model. So whether it's a, a president of a country or a CEO of a company, to start thinking about um, what, is, what is the footprint of my business or my country on the world and, and bring those different externalities into, whether it's the accounting systems or then, you know, if you can finally get into the accounting systems, then ultimately into how they do business on a daily basis. Yes? So given
1: that you're telling these towns that they can't cut down their trees because it'll mess up the dams downstream, how do you ensure that these towns can still develop economically?
0: Yeah, so that's a key part of our work um, is to develop alternatives. So um, there's a couple, there's many, many different ways we do that. We recognize there's, um, you know, there's an opportunity cost. We don't go into a community and say stop, stop trying to feed your family. Clearly, that's not, um, that's not what we're about or, or what is realistic. So we sit down and develop a, a, a development model with a community that not only it also helps everyone to understand what the value of, of what they're they're doing is in terms of their, their children and their children's children, but recognizing of course that people have to feed their families today. So thinking about things like increased productivity on existing agriculture, we're working with a lot of, like in Madagascar with um, rice farmers. Um, a big problem around in Madagascar is, is deforestation for, for planting um, rice, Tavi. Um, and so how do farmers with very simple, basic technological inputs, whether it's just changing the way they irrigate, um, or very simple techniques which don't cost them anything can increase their productivity on their own land without, um, cutting, without cutting new land for the same amount of rice. In addition to that, ecotourism is a big part of what we look at in, in the context of Madagascar, so where they have these amazing lemurs that, um, that the whole world wants to come and see but when they deforest for rice, they lose ha- critical habitat. Um, most of uh, Madagascar's forest is already gone. Um, so, ensuring that those final patches where the lemurs are still able to survive is there because that provides an economic resource and jobs for people. So, we're developing ecotourism throughout the country there.
1: Yes. So I'm in a class about conservation and kind of combining conservation with um, economics, I guess. Right. And uh, uh, the professor is involved in the project that kind of pushes the concept of natural capital. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if that's something that comes up when you're sort of pitching like ecosystem services to governments, things like that. Is that a pretty widespread term?
0: <coughs> yes, okay. it is in the United States. And we did um, we did a, a survey in other countries if this term natural capital has resonance, and it depends on the country. But it is it's more of a I think a U.S. Term, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about natural capital, and that's when I'm talking about ecosystem services. That's what we mean is, is natural capital. So, that's, that's, um, that's definitely the, the term of art right now of what we're trying to do. I'm not gonna call on you, yeah. <laughs> please. I, that, um, I really want to do something for the environment, and I want to be an entrepreneur, but. For me, I feel that as a young people, it's really hard to get the trust from government. Because when I start up, I'm little and I'm, I'm powerless. So I just want to know how you start up and uh, get so many, many trust from the government, from Silicon Valley, from the companies. And uh, do you have advice for us young people and how, how could we start up just with this place? There's your question. Great. Well, good. So, um, I, fantastic question. Thank you for that. Um, I would say that if you were to go back to your home country um, with all of this, this information that you're getting um, here at Stanford and work with local organizations, whether it's CI or there's plenty of others, um, they're thinking about this on, on a daily basis. And with your contacts and, and uh, um, new knowledge that you've found here, there's many, many, um, many, many ways that you can engage in this space. So I would encourage you, I mean, again, it's it's not about us trying to go and in, into China or any other country and say this is how you should do it. It's about people like you who are um, smart and interested and passionate to go home and really develop solutions with the government. And the governments, you know, in, in the case of China, I was just in Indonesia meeting and sitting with our, our China team, and they said the thing that resonates most with um, the governments, whether they're national governments or um, provincial governments in China, is these field demonstrations. So examples like the, the um, Pingu Water Fund. You know, they see that we're working with private sector, we're working with the Chinese provincial government and the, the dam companies, and they're seeing results that are preventing deforestation. So those kind of localized examples and in, in creating those when you when you go back to your home country is, is a fantastic um, way that you can be an entrepreneur in this space. So I would definitely encourage you to do that. How, but
1: how can uh, you do internships or, yes. or take college yes. uh, graduates? Mm-hmm. In- what are some stories
0: about? yeah we have um, we have an internship program um, summer internship program and then we have a fellowship program as well um, and uh, we love to have interns um, we usually have 20 or 30 in our offices in the, in the summertime and we're also doing um, some work with uh, business school students to take them out to visit some of our field projects for say a six week period and really be do a consultancy project with Like for example we have a fund called Verity Ventures which specifically works with small businesses and so we bring MBAs from the US to sit down with these entrepreneurs and help them think through their business plan and help them think through the metrics around success and, and or specific things related to marketing or product development. So we do lots of different things and love to engage um, Stanford in, in a program like that. So please, um, after this, you're welcome to come up and give me your information. And we can certainly keep in touch. That would be great. Yes, sir, in the back.
1: Can you talk about how you find your corporate partners and how you manage those relationships and expectations, given that a lot of the companies you talked about are big and diverse and may have conflicting interests?
0: Sure, um, so we find our corporate partners in a variety of different ways. One, they either um, come to us directly because they find out through um, the various things they're doing that, that we're a good partner to work with, or we will go and try to, um, to find them if they're working in a particular area. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, an oil palm, which is something that um, I'm just coming back from Indonesia, thinking a lot about and how we engage the oil palm sector through sustainable practices. Um, so those two different ways is how we, we find them or they find us. We do exhaustive due diligence on our partners. Um, and I say exhaustive because I'm involved in some of it and it is very intense where we are analyzing not only kind of the publicly available documents but also talking to all of our board members who may have connections with those companies and also um, our field programs so if there's a large mining company that we're working with we want to make sure that we want to see what their practices are in all these different countries and see really are they interested in in changing or improving or being a model for for their industry um, in terms of the conflicting interests yes that can sometimes be an issue although if they're coming to us um, for a specific reason, then we know that they're committed to to working on um, on whatever the issue is. So, um, for example, I'm working with a, um, a oil and gas company right now on uh, what's called a biodiversity offset plan. So they've come to us and they recognize they need to um, mitigate their footprint or offset their footprint to the extent that they can. So working with us to develop a project with them in communities where we work or our partners work that can then um, help offset. The, uh, the, the project that they're doing, the oil and gas, or mining. We do a lot of mining um, offset work as well. So um, good question. And, and managing those partnerships is a, is a full-time job. I have a team of, of about 40 people. Um, many of them are involved on a day-to-day basis managing um, relationships with corporate partners. Yes?
1: What uh, percent of the corporate partners are US, and what other countries do you find uh, corporate
0: partners? Yeah, so I'd say in terms of percentage, um, a question. I'm, I don't know the exact percentage, roughly, I'd say probably about 40 to 50 percent of the companies are US, but most are multinationals. Um, we do work with a lot of European um, companies as well, and then, of course, domestic. Um, companies so it's it 's a mix I mean some of the corporate partners are big ones. Walmart um, is a huge corporate partner of ours that we 've we 've helped steward through a lot of their sustainability initiatives starbucks is um, we 're just finishing a we 've been working with them for ten years on working on coffee farmers and now we 're helping them to climate change proof their coffee supply chain again for these these companies it 's not about csr it 's about really um enlighten self interest how do they ensure that their supply chains will be sustainable in a changing world um whether it's coffee or fish um or gold in the case of jewelry for Walmart we worked on a whole sustainability um program for for Walmart and just understanding those supply chains analyzing those supply chains and then analyzing the risks the environmental risks to the supply chains is is really critical so
1: and you run into USAID? You run into mm-hmm. CU, similar yes. Work.
0: Yes. So, in fact, um, we are just now getting ready to announce a big um, partnership between the Walmart Family Foundation, CI, and USAID in um, in Indonesia on a public-private partnership bringing in, it will be, be um, $20 million to start, and bringing in other companies to help develop sustainable supply chains in um, two different places. So it's RED, it's carbon markets, plus. A multitude of other job creating industries. So, yes, we do a lot with the Global Development Alliance, so with public private partnerships with USAID. Yes, Yaman. So, what kinds of strategies um,
1: do you have for scaling up these individual projects that you do throughout, you know, all over the globe? Because it seems like after you've put in the effort to come up with an innovative strategy in this one area, that the natural thing to do would be then to scale it.
0: Right. Great question. So, I'll give you an example from Ecuador. So we started a project in a little um, indigenous community called the Chachi um, working on what's called a conservation incentive agreement. So it's basically a contract, a performance-based contract with a community um, in exchange for agreeing not to hunt and deforest this one critical area. um, They received a package of benefits. So it was a long-negotiated contract. Uh, Project Many many years of discussions about what the community Needed and um, there's a package of Benefits that are provided education Health primarily in the case of of the Chachi So this project very Successful stopped deforestation Community was happy went to the government We brought the ministry of the the environment To this community and they were Thinking about using oil revenue Royalty tax on oil revenue For a national poverty Alleviation fund So we said to them what about combining poverty and um, environment, poverty alleviation and environment, using this Chachi model and expanding it throughout the country. And they said, okay, let's give it a shot. So now this program has been going on for about three years now, very, very successful in hundreds of communities throughout Ecuador, and is now part of this national program um, called Socio Bosque for protecting both environment and, and providing development packages primarily in indigenous communities in Ecuador. So that would be one example of scaling up. Now they're interested in doing it in the marine side a socio-mar for the marine um, space, working with fishing communities. So, very successful model. We're doing this in China as well. We brought um, ministers of uh, from regional governments in China to Ecuador to see the model. Just recently, um, we brought folks from South Africa, development ministers, um, 15 different government officials from South Africa to Costa Rica, where um, uh, the former minister of the environment of Costa Rica is on our staff and was instrumental in developing a payment for ecosystem services water fund. So these officials just went to Costa Rica to see how it was working, and now we're going back to South Africa and thinking about a national program for ecosystem service payment. So those are some of the examples of either making it a national policy so we can scale up small projects and and have them be larger than just those. Great question. Yes. Yes. You mentioned the partnerships with big corporations like Marriott and government. (coughs) Do you also have a relationship with smaller business or, let's say, a startup in Latin America
1: that is environmentally concerned?
0: Do you have one of those? Maybe. Kind of like a leading question. (laughs) Um, Yes, we do. We have a fund called Verde Ventures, um, which provides primarily debt finance. Um, to small and medium enterprises. Um, And it's right now about $15 million, and we're looking at scaling that up significantly, spinning it off from CI and raising more money. But we invest in ecotourism businesses. Starbucks is one of our major investors in that fund, so we do a lot of sustainable coffee investing, and we're getting into um, Marine Stewardship Council um, certified fish um, so yes, so, the, so under $5 million in total assets is, is the sweet spot for Verity Ventures and trying to um, address this issue of the missing middle where there's microfinance and there's commercial or some private equity, but there's nothing in the middle. So for those companies um, or cooperatives in the case of agricultural supply chains that don't have access to to finance, which is a huge problem, they have to borrow from moneylenders. And you know, if they need $125,000 from a moneylender, um, you can do the math on the interest rates they're charging. It's, it's unbelievable. So thinking about demonstrating to the commercial finance sector that you can do um, lending at the, at the small and medium enterprise level sustainably, and it can be cost-effective. So we're bringing banks out to our training programs and really showing them that biodiversity lending um, or environmental lending can be profitable. So yes, we do. Oh, well, can I you have one
1: question? more question? Yes, you may. Um, so what other organizations like CI do you admire or partner with I mean uh, in terms of environmental groups that tend to to bring an entrepreneurial spirit to their work
0: um, good question there's Large a, or small a lot
1: just so, so that yeah you just have an idea that
0: I would say um, there's a group in, based in DC called Forest Trends, which is one that I admire that's um, relatively new, very much a startup um, and is very active in ecosystem service markets, doing some really interesting things like I uh, was talking about in terms of trying to monetize um, ecosystem services. That would be one. Um, you know the, the big NGOs, the, the World Wildlife Fund and, and um, excuse me the Nature Conservancy are all doing. Great work. So again, we, um, we're we giving 30% of our money away to organizations like those to, um, because we recognize that we alone can't, can't do it all. So there's there's lots of those organizations out there.
1: And in what ways do you get involved with universities? I mean, yes. what, how does that
0: happen? So we are involved in universities both at a local level and in pretty much all the countries that we work in. Um, we rely on university students to do some of our monitoring, our third-party monitoring, of course, research. Um, we're uh, working with um, lots of uh, national and internationally known known universities on a variety of different uh, different topics. So, it's a very important part of part of our work. is Those partnerships. Okay. Well, yeah. oh, one more. One more. Just one. More. Yes.
1: One Are you doing anything in preserving biodiversity? If so, could you share a few examples? <laughs>
0: So um, so yes, so our whole um, mandate is really about preserving biodiversity. So um, most of our programming is involved in, in preserving biodiversity. Um, uh, we have, um, so the, the China example I gave, um, in those watersheds, we pick not only ecosystem service value areas, but also areas that are important for biodiversity. So that area that I mentioned, pingu mm-hmm. is also really important, panda habitat. Um, so that would be one example. Um, Uh, Every single project that we work on pretty much has um, rich biodiversity. In fact, our real estate historically where we invest the majority of our time and resources are what we call the, the biodiversity hotspots, so those areas that are um, most under threat, but have the largest number of endemic species. Um, we've, we're, we're still doing that work, but now we're um, expanding that to include watersheds and other really key ecosystem service areas um, that we need to preserve as well. So we haven't lost our biodiversity focus. It is a key, key focus of our work. Okay, thank you. Great, thank you.